0: Would you turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? Howard Hendricks said, I've never met a Christian who planned to have a mediocre life, but I've met plenty of mediocre Christians. That's true. Few of us set out to be mediocre, but many of us arrive there. Is your life on track to be mediocre? If Howard Hendricks met you, would he add you to his list of mediocre Christians? Or more importantly, how would God rate your life with him? Well, Paul addresses that issue in our passage this morning. The Thessalonian church was an impressive church. They were a model church when it came to evangelism. They had dramatic testimonies of how God had saved them out of idolatry. They were suffering persecution for their faith and standing firm. But when we come to chapter 4, Paul says to them, don't rest on your laurels. Don't settle for mediocrity. In fact, in verse 1, he tells us that they were walking and pleasing God but he says at the end of that verse, I want you to excel still more. In verse 10, he says that they were having love for all the brethren in Macedonia, but at the end of that verse, he says, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. In this fourth chapter, Paul is going to challenge the Thessalonians and us to something more than mediocrity. Look at verse 1. Finally then, brethren... We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. Now it's obvious here that Paul is writing to believers. He calls them brethren, and he exhorts them in the Lord Jesus. And he begins with the word that you hear preachers use often, finally. And like a typical creature. Paul uses it when he's still got two chapters left to go. You say, well, why does he say finally? Well, the word Paul uses here doesn't have so much to do with time as it does with emphasis. Paul isn't saying this is the end. He's saying this is important. Underline this. Highlight this. And what is the subject that Paul wants us to highlight? Well, you can see it in the middle of verse 1. It is how you ought to walk and please God. Paul had told them about this when he was with them, and now he writes to tell them about it again. And this is the fundamental subject in the Christian curriculum. The ultimate thing that matters above everything else is not how much you know, it's not how well you're known, it's not how much you accomplish The thing that ultimately matters above everything else is whether you walk with God and please Him. You know, the word walk is used twice here in verse 1. It's used again in verse 12. And it's interesting to me that Paul addresses this subject of our walk with God right before a passage in verses 13 to 18 where he's going to talk about the coming of the Lord Jesus. And I don't think that's an accident. We are looking forward to the day when we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And in the meantime, our feet are still on the ground and we have some walking to do. Now, I can't read this fourth chapter without thinking of an individual that's introduced to us early in the book of Genesis. And he's an individual by the name of Enoch. And Genesis chapter 5 tells us that Enoch walked with God for 300 years years. Now I have walked with God for 25 years, and I have to take my hat off to Enoch. He walked with God for 300 years, and how did he do? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5 says he was pleasing to God. He walked with God for 300 years, and he pleased him. And do you remember what happened to Enoch? It's described in Genesis five twenty four. It says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. He was so close to God that he took a walk with him one day and he never came back. And Paul's going to tell us in this chapter that that could very well happen to you. Any second, you could be taken into the presence of the Lord. And so the question is, am I walking with and pleasing God? Am I going to be like Enoch? Because for Enoch, it was a short step into heaven. Now, Paul points out three things about our walk with God in verse 1. The first thing I want you to notice is he says, you ought to walk and please God. And that's a strong word. It means you must. Paul didn't present it as an option. He presented it as an obligation. A believer is not to walk as he pleases, he is to walk as God pleases. And our English word ought is made up from two words that mean owe it. We owe it to God to walk with Him and please Him. Why is that? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you are not your own, you have been bought with a price. God gave Himself for you and you owe yourself to Him. I like the way he put it in 2 Corinthians five fifteen. He says, And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. One of the things that God saved you from is living for yourself. And so Paul says, You ought to walk and please God. Second thing I want you to notice is that he says here in verse 1, notice the word how, as to how you ought to walk And please God I like that Paul didn't just teach these young believers what they ought to do he taught them how they ought to do it you see the coach who gives the awe-inspiring pep talk but doesn't give his team a game plan just frustrates them and the same is true with the preacher or the teacher of the Word of God it's not enough to be challenging or enlightening or motivating it has to be practical People have to see how to put shoe leather on the truth of God. And Paul did that. He taught them how to walk and please God. So he said, you ought to. Here's how to. And then I want you to notice one other phrase at the end of verse 1. He says that you may excel still more. Paul says to these Thessalonian believers, you are doing what I told you to do. You are walking and pleasing God. But was Paul satisfied? You see, whenever you are satisfied with your walk with God, you are on the road to mediocrity. And so Paul says, you're doing great, but I want you to excel. I want you literally to abound more and more. And then Paul reinforces his position in verse 2. He says, For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. These are not suggestions. They're commandments. And these are not Paul's ideas. They are given by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And these are not new to them. Paul has told them before. You see, Paul says, to excel still more in your walk with God, I don't need to give you some new information. You just need to do what you already know. And that's important for us to understand. If you want to be more than mediocre, You don't need to know something more about what to do. You need to do something more about what you know. What I have today to say today is not going to be new to most of you. And so the question you need to ask yourself is not, did I learn something new? The question you need to ask yourself is, am I going to do something different? Now, what is it that they and we need to know to excel, to excel still more in our walk with God. Well, Paul points to three areas in the passage we're going to look at this morning. They're real simple. The first is the area of lust. The second is the area of love. And the third is the area of laziness. And if you're going to be more than mediocre, you're going to have to address these three areas in your life. The first is lust in verses 3 to 8. Notice verse 3. For this is the will of God. Now, I run into a lot of Christians who are searching for the will of God. They're always talking about the will of God, and when they say they're seeking the will of God, they're usually talking about who they're going to marry, what job they're going to take, what school they're going to go to. Let me give you some simple advice. Don't let the will of God that you don't know take precedence over the will of God that you do know. While you're waiting to discover the will of God that you don't know, Get busy doing the will of God that you do know. You say, well, what is the will of God? Well, he tells you right here. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, the word sanctification means to be set apart. And in Scripture, it's primarily used to describe the practical process of our being set apart from sin to righteousness, from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. And this is one of those terms that might help us to understand it by understanding it in the light of some other long words in Scripture. First is justification. Justification is a long word that simply means to declare righteous. It's a legal term. When you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, God declared you to be just even though you're not. Now, how did he do that? Well, the answer is in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, He, God, made Him Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. God put your sins on Jesus, and He put Jesus' righteousness on you. So that even though it doesn't look like it right now, you are just as righteous as Jesus Christ even though it doesn't look like it right now, you are just as good as God. Now, do you have trouble handling that? You shouldn't, because that's what justification means. God has declared you righteous because He has taken the righteousness of Jesus Christ and He has put it in your account. And so positionally, you are already righteous before God. He has declared you so. That's justification. Great work. There's another long word in Scripture. It's glorification. Glorification is the concept of when this mortal will be transformed into immortality. Paul referred to it in Romans 8.19 as the revealing of the sons of God. That's when the reality of who we really are will be fully realized. That's when we will no longer simply be declared righteous. We will actually be righteous. As John said in 1 John 3, 2, we shall be like him, for we shall see him just as he is. Now, justification is in the past tense. It happens at the moment I place my faith in Jesus Christ. God declares me righteous. Glorification is in the future tense. I'm still waiting for that to happen. Sanctification is in the present tense. Sanctification is the process of moving from justification to glorification. It is the daily outworking of justification in my life as I am set apart from sin and set apart unto God. You say, well, can you make that a little more practical? Okay, that's exactly what Paul does. Look at verse 3. For this is the will of God, Your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Paul says, all right, we've talked enough about theological terms. If you're going to be set apart unto God, if you're going to excel in your walk with Him, if you're going to be more than mediocre, you're going to have to focus on the area of sexual purity. And in verses 3 to 6, he gives three practical exhortations. The first is abstinence at the end of verse 3. That you abstain from sexual immorality. Now the Greek word for sexual immorality is the word porneia, from which we get pornography. It's a word that means every kind of sexual sin. He's speaking about adultery, premarital sex, homosexuality, pornography, and he says you are to abstain. You are to refrain, stay away from, stop. None of those things are to be going on in your life. That's the first exhortation. Then he gives a second second exhortation, and that's self-control in verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 says that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Now, what does Paul mean when he says you are to possess your own vessel? Well, some say he's talking here about a wife because the word vessel is used that way in 1 Peter 3, 7, where it says the wife is the weaker vessel. So some are saying if you're struggling with sexual temptation, find a wife. Not a bad exhortation. But I don't think that's what he's saying here. Because the, the word vessel is also used in Scripture another way. We read it used that way in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, where Paul says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We have the treasure of God's salvation in a clay pot. And what is the clay pot? What is the earthen vessel? It's our bodies. And I think that's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying you need to learn to possess your body and not let your body possess you. When it comes to the area of sexual lust, you are to be controlling your body. Your body is not to be controlling you. You say, but I can't control my body. Yes, you can because one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. When I allow the Spirit of God to fill me, control me, when He produces His fruit in my life, one of the evidences of that is self-control, that I can control my body. Now, why didn't Paul use the word body here? Why does he use the word vessel? Well, I think he uses it because he wants us to see that our bodies are vessels that God wants to use for his purposes. Oftentimes, I I come to the office and I bring a cup of coffee from home. Uh, I'm not as good at taking those cups back home. Uh, Have you ever seen what happens in the bottom of a cup of coffee when you leave it for about a week? It grows green stuff. And, and, and yesterday, as, as I was in my office, I looked over and I had three coffee cups lined up there. And I looked in the first one and I thought, well, you know, if I just rinse that out, I could probably use that one. And I looked in the second one and it was, it was borderline. And I looked in the third one and it was scary. See, God is saying, your body is a vessel. He has put his treasure inside of you. And He wants you to be set apart from immorality unto honorable use. You see, that third coffee cup could not be used for anything honorable. And there are times when God is looking for a vessel. And He wants to use someone to accomplish His purposes. And there are times when He may look at your life and say, I'd like to use you. But there's green stuff growing in the box. You've been involved in immorality and you're not confessing it to me. You're not clean. You're not useful. You're not ready to be used in an honorable way by God. And so he says we need to deal with this area. We need to be clean with God in this area so that He can use us in honorable ways. And then he goes on in verse 5 and says, you're to possess your vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles, who do not know God. When your body controls you, you are led about by your lustful passion. You are guided by your glands. You are controlled by your hormones. You are a slave to your impulses. And Paul says you are acting just like people who don't know God. And then there's a third exhortation, and that's in verse 6. He says, And that no man transgress and defraud his brother... In the matter. Sexual sin is not a private sin. When you commit sexual sin, you are stealing something that belongs to someone else. The word defraud means to rob. Sexual immorality robs. It takes what belongs to another. It robs the other person's virginity and character. It robs from the other person's spouse. It robs from the other person's future spouse, it robs from your spouse. Paul says we need to deal with the area of sexual purity. But you know, the first century was not a whole lot different than our century in their, in their view of immorality. They sort of winked at it. They just assumed it was, it was like eating, drinking. It was a necessity. You were going to do it. They sort of turned their heads the other way. And so Paul, after giving us these exhortations goes on to give us three reasons why we ought to obey them in verses 6 to 8. The first is God's punishment at the end of verse 6. He says, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. This is the kind of sin that people will do everything to hide. They will sneak around in the dark. They will lie. They will deceive. And Paul says, even when you hide it, everybody else you can't hide it from God and he is the avenger and so the first motivation is God's punishment the second is God's purpose in verse 7 for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity but in sanctification God has not called you into impurity he has called you out of impurity the whole point of Jesus hanging on the cross was to deliver you from sin. God has called you to be set apart. God has called you to be pure. The prodigal son may get into the pig pen for a while, but he won't live there because he has a higher calling. And then the third thing, third reason is God's provision in verse 8. He says, Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. When you choose to live in immorality, you're not just rejecting what the preacher says. You're rejecting what God says. But more than that, you are rejecting God's provision for you. Because as a believer, God has given you his Holy Spirit. And what do we know about him? He is holy. And he wants to produce that same holiness in you, that set-apartness from sin unto God. And so when you commit sexual immorality, it is a sin against God's Spirit who has been provided within you. So Paul says, if you're going to excel in in your walk with God, if you're going to be more than mediocre, the first area you have to address is the area of lust. But there's a second area, and that's the area of love in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. The Thessalonian believers didn't need anyone to write to them about this subject. Why not? Well, Paul goes on to give two reasons. Number one, he says, you're taught by God to love one another at the end of verse 9. Faith and love are inseparable. You won't find one without the other. That's why John could say in 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. That's why he could say in 1 John 4, 7, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. You see, love comes naturally to a Christian. Nobody has to draw it up on a blackboard. God is your teacher. John said in 1 John four nineteen, we love, why? Because He first loved us. And the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. So Paul says, I don't have to teach you about love because God is already your teacher in this area. But there's a second reason. And that second reason is because you do practice it. Look at verse 10. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. Their love was evident. They practiced it. Everybody could see it. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul speaks about the Macedonian believers among whom the city of Thessalonica was. And he says, these believers begged me to participate in giving to the poor saints in Jerusalem, and he says they gave out of their deep poverty. There's an expression of their love. They said, Paul, please let us participate. Even though we're poor ourselves, we want to give to meet their needs. That's love. It was practical, and it was obvious. But with all that love, what does Paul say to them? At the end of verse 10, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still Love is not something you have to ration out because you never have to worry about running out of it. Romans 5.5 says the love of God has been poured out within our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is in us. We have a limitless supply of love because it's God's love. And so Paul says, I want it to abound more and more. If we're going to excel in our walk with God so that we are more than mediocre, We need to deal with the area of love. But then there's a third area, and that's laziness in verses 11 and 12. Some in the church at Thessalonica had gotten so excited about the second coming that they had decided to quit their jobs and just wait for the Lord to come. This apparently got worse as time went on, and so when Paul wrote the second letter to them, he says this in chapter 3 and verse 11... For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. You see, they were using eschatology as an excuse to be irresponsible. They were using their professed longing for the Lord as an excuse for laziness. And many have followed that same pattern over the years. In fact, I would suggest to you that as we approach the year 2000 this is gonna happen more and more and more there are there are fanatical groups right now moving to Jerusalem to be near the Mount of Olives for the year 2000 thinking that Jesus is gonna come back now let me ask you this because we believe in the second coming of Christ should we do fanatical things should we all quit our jobs and get up on the roof Well, that's what some of the people in Thessalonica were doing. And Paul writes to them. Notice what he says to them in verse 11. Three exhortations. First of all, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. The word quiet means simple and tranquil. They were saying, since the Lord is coming back, we need to do fanatical things that make an uproar. And Paul says, no. I want you to make it your ambition to be quiet. And in the second exhortation in verse 11, he says, and attend to your own business. What happens when you quit working? You get too much time on your hands. And what do you tend to do with your extra time? You get involved in everybody else's business. And Paul says, mind your own business. And then the third thing he says in verse 11 is, and work with your hands just as we commanded you. Get a job. You say, but what if the Lord comes back tomorrow? Well, then let him rapture you out of the job interview. You see, what Paul is saying is that we are not to be set apart from the responsibilities of this world. We are to be set apart from the sin of this world. We are to be involved. We are to be participating. We are to be working. We are to be laboring. But in the midst of all of that, we are to be different in our moral character. And then he gives two practical reasons for that in verse 12. The first is, it's good for outsiders. Verse 12, so that you may behave properly or literally walk honestly toward outsiders. How do you communicate the gospel most effectively to those at work? Is it by quitting your job and getting up on the roof? No. If you do that, they're going to think you're nuts, and they'll be right. What is the best way to communicate the gospel to those at work? Is to be the very best worker that you can be. And so Paul says, I want you to work hard. Why? Because it is a testimony to those who are outside the Lord. And then he gives a second reason in verse 12, is, and that is it's not only good for outsiders, it's good for you, the end of verse 12, and that you may not be in any need. There's one problem with quitting your job and waiting for Jesus to come back and that is pretty soon you get hungry and thirsty and homeless. And so Paul says, get a job, mind your own business, lead a quiet life, and you will not be in need. Do you want to excel in your walk with God? Do you want to be more than mediocre? You don't have to be a fanatic. You don't have to sell everything and move to Jerusalem. Paul says you need to deal with some areas of your life. One is lust, by learning to control your body and the power of the Spirit of God. The second is love, by abounding more and more in your love for others. And the third is laziness, by working hard at your own business.